As we open up uh, God's Word today to Luke chapter 11, I want to start off with a question for you. Have you ever been confronted about sin in your life? And if so, how did you respond? Now, I can think of a number of times where in my life I have been confronted about my sin. And I think of one particular time, and, and really these kind of would add up to multiple times, when I was in my teenage years. And um, I was wild, and I was running wild, and I was running in rebellion. And um, man, it, I just had my eyes on the world, and I was just doing worldly things. And a man named Harris Presley, if you've been around long enough, you've heard me talk about Harris. Um, Harris was, was a man who lived maybe a mile or two down the road from me, and I worked for him uh, in, in some of my teenage years. I went to church with him, and uh, he volunteered in our youth group and what, you know, di different things, and he preached at our church, and, and uh, he, he did different things from time to time. He's a very important part of our church, but Harris loved me, and I knew that Harris loved me. And Harris cared about me, and um, he cared deeply about me. I, I, I remember, um, you know, after my father died, Harris was one of the men who just showed up in my life and made sure that I had a fa father figure. Harris loved me. And I, I'll never forget one time that I, I was running from the Lord. I, I was living for the world and running from the Lord. I wanted nothing to do with the things of the Lord. And I remember Harris showing up putting his arm around me, and he said, he called me son. He said, son, you know I love you, and I knew what was about to happen, right? As soon as he said, as soon as he said you know I love you, I thought, I'm getting taken to the woodshed. He, he's, a, he's about to take me to the spiritual woodshed, and he did. And he called me on my sin. Now, I wish I could say that in that moment, I went, he's right. And I would repent and run back to the Lord. But rather, I knew that he loved me. And I knew that he cared about me. But I was determined to do with the things that I had been doing. And so I said, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And I obliged. And I went on about my business and lived in my rebellion. And oh, man, would my life have been so much better and so much easier had I just heeded his instruction and returned to walking with the Lord. You know, in my life as a pastor, I've confronted quite a few people over their sin. Uh, man, Matthew chapter 18, um, Jesus kind of lays out a blueprint for us on what church discipline looks like and how we should confront people in their sin. And um, in my ministry, I have, I have I've held to that model. I have gone to, to people. I have taken other leaders in the church with me and even in, been a part of a church that's had to practice church discipline and remove people from church. And so um, I have gone to people, and I have confronted them about their sin. And I'll just tell you, it seems like to me that nine times out of ten when you confront people about their sin— their response is the wrong response. Their response is to grab hold of their sin and to make you be the one, to play the victim and make it seem as if you're the one that's the problem. Now, I'd, I've done it, so I recognize it. Matter of fact, 
I think I still do it. I think Jennifer and I can, can be having a conversation, and she can point out some sort of sin in my life. And remember, I've told you, what, what's my number one response? I know I am, but what are you, right? It's like try to, try to like use a mirror to deflect. So many people, I think, in our culture, we hear a lot in the, this de, uh, deconversion uh, culture. I just used the wrong word. What do they call it? It's not... Deconstruction, it's also deconversion. Uh, deconstruction uh, culture can be deconversion. It doesn't necessarily have to be that. But in this deconstruction culture, you hear a lot about church hurt. And I hear about church hurt sometimes. And I think they're like, there's legitimate things where uh, there are sinners in church. Every church in America is full of sinners. Uh, every pastor in every church is also a sinner. And so, man, sin brings hurt. And so often there's hurt. But I'll tell you that so often when I hear about church hurt, what I really hear is they called you on your sin and you didn't like it. You know, I, I, can, I can think of somebody who was a part of our core team in our church who uh, was sinning and knew it and hid it and, and blocked Jennifer and I on social media so that we couldn't see their sin. And when called on it, church hurt. They hurt me. no. You hurt yourself. Anybody ever had an animal caught in a trap? And that animal's caught in a trap. Maybe it's a calf caught in a fence or something like that. And you're trying to help that animal out of, out of the trap, out of the fence, out of their pain. And what does that animal think that you're doing? Hurting it. But what are you really trying to do? You're trying to free it from its sin. Well, in our text today, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is going to confront some people over their sin. And I want to give you a warning as we read this today. We're going to read about these Pharisees and these scribes or these lawyers. And we're going to read about it. And it's so easy for us to look at them and go, Woe the Pharisees and woe the lawyers. Look how legalistic they were. I'll tell you, I don't think anybody in our church is going to struggle with the level of legalism, the level of things that they did. So it's easy for us to look at them and do exactly what Jesus says and see the speck in their eye without seeing the log in our, our eye. So open up yourself today to conviction to say, if this is confronting me and my sin, may I be willing to turn from it. Here's the big truth that I want us to, to walk away with today as we read this text. The Bible's confrontation of our sin is a gift that should lead us to repentance and belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, confrontation of our sin is a gift. It is as if we are heading off of a cliff. We are heading into some sort of proverbial spiritual suicide. And there is somebody in front of us going, whoa, stop, whoa, don't go there. The Bible's confrontation of our sin is a gift that should lead us to repentance. It should lead us to turn. And it should lead us to belief in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So, start reading with me in chapter 11, verse 37. So, we're gonna, we've been in the, the chapter 11, I think, four weeks now. And so, today we're going to, to head into, we're going to finish the, the book so that next week we can head into chapter 12. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went and he reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished 
to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and, and, and out of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You do not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who are entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. I tell you, as we begin to take apart this passage, the boldness of Jesus to confront sin here is impressive to me. And, and, and that verse there in the middle where the lawyers say, Teacher, you're offending us too. <laughs> and he just goes, Woe to you, lawyers! Like the, the, the boldness to know that what is right and what is good is worth stating, is, is, is worth speaking is worth saying to their hearts. And I want you to understand something. As Jesus is preaching this, and he talks about the prophets, you're going to kill the prophets. He knew that these people that he would boldly preach this message to would want to end up killing him. But yet, he was willing to do what was right for them anyway. He could have dodged the bullet. He could have ducked and run, but rather, he did the most loving thing that he could do, and that was to confront them in their sin. And so let's begin to break this down. So verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, remember, remember last week, he's, he's been speaking uh, to these crowds, and 
he, he's talked about true blessedness, the sign of Jonah, the light in you, and, and having your eye on the things that are right, not the eye on darkness. He says to them, our Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so he goes and he reclines at the table with those who are, are, are his audience. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Man, talking about bold. He says, you're a fool. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that were then, and behold, everything is clean for you. And so here is my first big idea. Is the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When Jesus reclines at table, he doesn't first go through the ceremonial washing of hands. Now, we think, we read this passage and we automatically think, oh, it's gross not to wash your hands before you eat. This is not what was going on here. This wasn't a hygiene issue. They weren't even quite aware of hygiene. This was a, a, legalist, a legalism issue about being what would make your body spiritually unclean. And there were tons of rules around ceremonial washings. Now, these rules, uh, some of them maybe have a root in Scripture, but they added on, and these lawyers and, and, and the scribes, they added on to the law and added on to the law, and they kept adding rules. And so you're going to see, that you're, you'll see that as it continues. There's, there's rule adding that kind of takes place over and over and over. And so there, were, there was a certain ceremonial washing, a cer certain order in which you'd wash your hands, and a certain angle in which you had to hold your arms. If, if you let water run up on your arm and then it ran back down on your hand, your hand was unclean and you had to start over. And uh, the, the fear was that maybe your hand had touched something that a Gentile had touched or something dead or unclean, and then by... By not washing your hands before you ate, it was going to make you un unclean. So that's what they were going after. This wasn't like, oh, they're scared they're going to get germs. They weren't really aware of, of germs in that issue. This was, this was the ceremonial washing. And so they're, they're worried about this. They're thinking, oh, you're going to make yourself spiritually unclean. What they didn't know is that Jesus could not become spiritually unclean because he was sinless. He, he was clean. And so he calls him out. You Pharisees clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fool. Now, let me tell you how I, I normally kind of study to preach. On Sunday afternoons, I, I literally walk off of the stage after the second service, and I put the sermon I preached that day behind me, and I start thinking about the sermon for the next week. I go home on Sunday night, and I copy and paste the text into a, the, uh, for the next week into a Word document, and I read that text on Sunday night. I end up reading that text often hundreds of times throughout the week. And so I had read this text last Sunday, and I read it on Monday, and 
Uh, I listened to uh, Dr. York preach a sermon on this text on Monday, and, and I read it on Tuesday, and I read it Tuesday night, and, and so I had this passage in my head, right? All week long, I had this passage in my head. Well, at our house, I typically unload the dishwasher. And so uh, earlier this week, I unload the dishwasher, and I pull out a bowl, and man, uh, you know, I'm a big, I hate to be this way, I'm a big rinse it before you put it in guy. You got to pre-rinse or the dishwasher just doesn't clean it. Just rinse it and put it in, you know. Um, I don't know. There's four of us in our family. We've had five people living in our house lately. Uh, six, you're right. For a time, there was six people. But anyway, all, until Friday, it was five. And I don't know. I'm going to guess only two-fifths of us pre-rinse and the other three don't. And uh, you can. I'll let you guess who the pre-rinsers are and who aren't. And... I pull out this bowl, and on the outside of this bowl, there's this little, it looks like a little leaf. I don't know, it's tiny. And I look at it, and I'm like, I got this passage in my mind. I like look at the inside of the bowl, and the inside of the bowl was clean, but the outside's got something on it. And so like, I hit it with my finger, and I'm trying to get it. I'm like, man, that thing is baked on there. Whatever that is, it is baked on there. And I went, well, the inside's clean, and I put it up. Well... On Sunday mornings, as the ritual in our house, I'm typically upstairs looking over my sermon, and Jennifer, or one of the boys, typically brings me a bowl of oatmeal into the office. And uh, this morning, uh, Jennifer comes in, it's a bowl of oatmeal with blueberries and honey in it, and on the side of the bowl is that, that old dried up leaf. I was like, man, I got what I deserve, like I should have rewashed that bowl, what have I, I done? And so I said, well, the inside was clean. And I ate that bowl of oatmeal not even thinking about the outside of that dish having that little bit of whatever was, was on it. Jesus' point is, is that we so often look at the things of the outside and we go, ooh, gross. Meanwhile, we all walk around with Nalgene bottles. We've been putting water in for years, ain't cleaned the inside of them, right? Uh, you know... All the guys know, the women are like, I cleaned my algae, that straw ain't clean. Like, pull out that straw and look at it. <laughs> it w w but the outside's got pretty stickers on it, <laughs> like we care about it. That's what we do in life so often. We look at the outward appearance of things. And so here he uses this illustration of a, uh, a dish. He uses this illustration of, 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 of a dish, a cup. But we don't look at the outside. And he says, listen, what is on the inside of you but greed and wickedness? You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? If you go back to that big idea, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Remember, I like to use Scripture so often for my big ideas. Matter of fact, every big idea today is from Scripture. This is actually Scripture from 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In the book of 1 Samuel, what we see is that Samuel was fit by the people's measure, by the people's standard, for Saul 
to be king. And so the, the people uh, tell the story, Saul, they wanted Saul to be king. He's the first king of Israel. They had looked around. They had said, all these other countries have kings. Who is our king? We need a king. And man, they looked on the outward appearance, but inwardly Saul was, was, was greedy. Saul, Saul was all about the things of the world. But what about David? David didn't have the stature. David didn't have the, the height. David, the world didn't look at David and think, hey, this one will be a king. This one will be good to fight uh, Goliath. This one will be good. Like every time David's outward appearance was looked on in, 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 in the Old Testament, what do we see? But he didn't look fit to be a king. But why did God choose David to be a king? It was for his heart. When, when, G, when, when God was, was selecting between the brothers to see who would fight Goliath, here they're like, look at this brother, look at this brother, look at this brother. And yet the Lord rejects it. Why? And picks David because of his heart. It is what is on the inside that matters. And so, what does he say to him? But give as alms those things are the, with it in, and behold, everything is clean for you. What Jesus is telling us here is give your heart to Christ. Set your mind and set your heart on the things that are above and stop worrying about outside appearances. Stop worrying about those who appear righteous, but those who count Christ as their righteousness. It is only Christ who is righteous. And so, we're going to go into these Two woe passages. And there's six woes in total. Three to the Pharisees. Three to the lawyers. So go with me to verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb. And neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk all over them without knowing it. Here's my next big idea. Is that we should be grieved by our deceitful and sick hearts. The prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 7, 17, 9... The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus pronounces these three woes to the Pharisees. And when he says, woe to you, this is what he's saying. He's saying, oh, I'm grieved by your actions. Because your actions are going to lead to damnation. They're going to lead you to destruction. Your actions. Whoa. This is, this is grief to me. Grief to you. Pharisees. You should be. Broken. Over your sin. Now. Here's the issue. The Pharisees thought they were doing these things. They thought these were righteous things. They, they thought they were earning favor with God. They thought by doing these things. Um, by tithing mint and rue and every herb. They thought, oh, I'm earning favor with God. Now, here's the issue. In the Old Testament, in their, in their time, even, even then, 
they were held to tithe. They should tithe. A tithe is one-tenth of something. And so when they would go and they would harvest their grain, they should take one-tenth of that grain and they should take it uh, and give it to the priest and make a tithe. It's an offering uh, to God. There's different offerings and different systems that we see set up in the Old Testament. And a tithe was something they should have done. He says to them, you tithe on every little thing. On mint and rue and every herb. Well, isn't that a good thing? Isn't it a good thing that I tithe on those little things? Now, the Old Testament didn't require that they tithe on those things. There were, there were only certain things that, that they were required to tithe on. They were actually typically big, like their grain harvest, their oil harvest. They were like big things, right? So you tithe on, on these big things. And, and they were like, you know, if God calls us to tithe on these, these big things... Let's take it a step further. Let's make this, uh, we see this actually in the Old Testament called a free will offering. Hey, not because out of duty, because out of delight. Let us give. Man, that, that, that actually is what we see in the New Testament. We see kind of a tithe as like this Old Testament standard. And a New Testament standard is it's a free will offering. It's not earning us favor. It's not out of duty. But we get to give out of delight. So let's go above and beyond. When we see somebody in need, let's meet that need. When we, when we see uh, a, a place where our finances can be stewarded for God's glory, let's steward them for God's glory. What you can't do is go, well, I tithe at church. I can't help you. Well, I've given enough. I can't give any more. So the problem, the problem wasn't from a place of, oh, they gave too much. The problem... Was it says is what they neglected. You tithe on every mint and rue and herb, but yet you neglect justice and the love of God. You, you neglect these things that are a command. Uh, Micah 6 8, maybe the most familiar place in Scripture, but definitely in the Old Testament, we see that these, this principle over and over and over. Micah 6 8 says, He's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God to care for what is right and what is good and we've we've been in the book of Luke and we've seen for weeks now uh, where there are people who have injustices done to them and the Pharisees do not care it doesn't matter to them because it's not them they they're more worried about the fact that jesus healed on the sabbath or jesus touched an unclean person rather than to see justice done or to love them or to be kind or to walk humbly with their their god and so there was the issue it was that they not just that they added to the law but that they neglected other parts of the law and, and, and made themselves justified, self-justification, by the things that they counted as righteous and worth it. That's the first woe. The second, you love the best seat in the synagogue. And when you're in the market, you love to be greeted a certain way. You love to be made to feel important. Man, here's one of the things about the best seat in, that syn in the synagogues. Those who got the best seat actually would, would sit kind of up front behind the speaker while everybody else kind of sat out there. Now, we, we've, anybody ever been to a church like that? 
uh, or, or it's, man, this was pretty common in the 80s and the 90s. If you went to like a First Baptist church or a First Methodist church, you'd see people on the stage behind them. And it was always funny to me because it, it, you know, it was typically an older person that, that is a part of the church and they were often would get sleepy, you know. And they're like nodding up there uh, behind and you're like, man, you got you to get that guy down. Like that guy don't need to be on stage, uh, pan the camera away uh, kind of deal. Um, this is what they love. They love being seen as important, being put up on stage, being staged. When they would go to the market and they would get like, this big sort of greeting, like, hey, it's a big deal, you're here. There's a fame. There's an importance. He cries out, woe. Woe to you. For you love the best seats in the marketplace. You're about you. You're about your name being elevated. You're not about the name of God being elevated. You're about your glory. You're not about God's glory. Woe to you, because you are working for the wrong kingdom. And then the last woe. He says, woe to you. For you are like unmarked graves and people walk all over them without knowing it. Now, a grave was seen to be unclean. And if you touched a grave, if you were part of a burial ceremony, or you uh, uh, touched a grave, you... Were, were unclean, and you had to go through a cleansing process. Now, this was, again, there's a ton added on within uh, the, the Pharisees adding on of the law. The lawyers added these things on. There's a, there's a ton of them. They were seen as unclean. In another place in Scripture, Jesus, Jesus like, kind of as a call-out, says, you whitewashed tombs. Now, what did that mean? A, a whitewashed tomb was a tomb that had been cleaned on the outside, it was a mark grave. They knew this was a tomb, and, and it was clean. And, and when they're clean, by the way, they knew not to touch them. And he's like, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You're clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. In this instant, he's, instance, he's saying something different. He's saying, you're like an unmarked tomb. People walk over you. They step on you. They don't know that you're a tomb, and they defile himself. There's, he's saying, people think you're clean, but you're really dirty. People think you're clean, but you're not clean. You're, in fact, dirty. You're dirty on the inside. And each of these th three things, he gives these woes. And I go back to the big idea that we should be grieved by our deceitful and sick hearts. You know, the mantra of much of American pop culture is follow your heart. What horrible advice. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things. We are desperately sick. Who can understand it? We should be grieved by it. You see these, you see these Pharisees who wanted to do what was right. They, they, they wanted to be righteous, but yet in it they got caught up in themselves and in their sin, and Jesus pronounces woes to them. Grief. I grieve for you. I'm broken for you over your sin. My question for you today, I, I don't think any, anybody's in here tithing on their, their things out of their garden or their men or whatever else. I don't think that's like 
the stumbling block for you. I don't think we're walking over unmarked tombs, but my question to you is what are the things in your life that you are blind to, that your heart has deceived you in? Would you pray and say, God, show me my sin. Show me the things that I'm doing that are unpleasing to you. Lord, from your word, reveal to me what it is that I need to repent on. The things that that I've been confronted about. May I not just hold on to them. May I not just uh, point out the sins of the other person. May I not just look at the speck in their eye. Help me to deal with the log in mine. Let us be grieved by the, our deceitful and sick hearts. Now let's move on to the lawyers. I love this. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Man, if this isn't the, the human race, I don't know what is. It's like, hey, you're offending me. Stop it. Nope, you're not safe here. This is not a safe place. <laughs> Woe to you lawyers also. So he goes into these. What are, what are these three woes? For you load people up with burdens hard to bear. And you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets with your, they, whom your fathers killed. And so here we're seeing this, this generational guilt. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. And he quotes and he says, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they, they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Man, that's a heavy woe. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. And the third woe, woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You do not enter, in, you not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who are entering. And here's my next big idea. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. Here are these lawyers who think they haven't sinned. It's like, wait, you're beginning to insult us. Yeah, lawyers, you sin too. Yeah, like the Pharisees, I called them on their sin. I started stepping on your toes. You got bothered on it. Well, let me go ahead and step on yours. You are a sinner too. You load people up with burdens you cannot bear. And this is what the the scribes did. When we read about the, the scribes and the Pharisees, we see that they just added to the law and added to the law. And they would do things over and over and over to make them look on the outside good while making everyone else look bad. You know, so much within the progressive left culture, um, and, and, and maybe this happens in, in kind of this uh, forward-moving, far-right-wing culture as well, but, but for sure this progressive left culture in America, that you'll watch people like try to, to do um, every dot and iota of the leftist agenda, and they do it, and then the goal moves, and they've got to become more progressive, and it just, no one can ever meet the target. There's like these elite group in the left that moves the target, and you watch people try to achieve status so that they'll be accepted within the progressive left culture. 
Well, the Pharisees did the the same things. They continually moved the goalpost in order to stay elite, to stay to be the ones who were at the top of the game, the ones who looked righteous and dignified, the ones who looked like they had good standing with God. You load people up with burdens yourself you cannot bear. You make rules that you cannot keep and you pretend that you do. The second woe, you build memorials for the prophets that your ancestors killed. You are putting forward a revisionist history. You're looking back on history and you're going, hey, look at these prophets and we'll cherry pick the things that we said and say that we like them. But Jesus points out, listen, you are building tombs and monuments, but yet your people killed them. Your ancestors didn't like what they were saying, so you killed them. And and he goes, man, he goes all the way back to Cain and Abel early on in Genesis and comes up to Zechariah. I mean, I can't even imagine all the names that could have been in between. And here's what he calls them on. And his, this is just the reality. You group, this group right here, you lawyers, you're going to kill your own share of prophets. There's going to be prophets that you kill, particularly the one that was talking to them, at the hands of these kind of men, and possibly some of these men, but of these kinds of men, Jesus would be crucified. It would be them who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. To reject the actual things that the prophet said, to, to build them up, to make themselves look better, yet they would kill him. It was his ultimate hypocrisy. And then he said, you hindered people from entering. Yet you weren't going to enter yourself. Meaning, you you kept people out. Whether it was because they followed your bad teaching. Or because you so squashed them by pointing out what they were not. Or putting in these laws that would keep them from it. You cause the little one to stumble. Jesus says, it is better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the ocean. That means you would drown. Than it is to cause one of these little children to stumble. Uh, Jesus' brother James, he says, those who teach are judged more strictly. There's a higher standard for those who teach. And so you therefore need to be careful what you teach. Lest you cause the little one to stumble. And so he goes in with these woes. And all of a sudden they're all guilty. And so here's this truth. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then verse 53 happens. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to revoke him to speak about many things. And listen to what they did in 54. Lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. We see this over and over in Scripture. They wanted to catch Jesus. They wanted to have the gotcha moment, the moment that would take him down. The gotcha moment. 
Man, our, our, our world is full of gotcha moments right now. If you watch the Republican primaries, every day these news outlets are like, it's the gotcha moment for what? They're trying to make, make them fall. Like, this is the moment that's going to take them down. They're lying in wait to catch them. This is, that, this is nothing new under the sun. They were doing this to Jesus. And so here is Jesus, and they want to catch him in what he might say. Jesus knew this. Jesus, we see in Scripture that Jesus knew they were trying to catch them in a trap. They knew that they thought, man, I want to kill him. We want him gone. He is threatening us. He's threatening our authority and, and our power. He's threatening our way of life. We must rid ourselves of him. We've got to catch him in something that he might say. We've got to prove that he's not who he says he is. Here's my next big idea. God shows us his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. These, these Pharisees and lawyers who are trying to catch Jesus, who want Jesus to die, Jesus is going to willingly go to the cross and lay down his life that the one who is pure on the inside and out, the one who is holy and righteous would be sacrificed for those who weren't. Those who were guilty in the eyes of God. Those who have sinned against God, who wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus was going to go to the cross and die for. This is the good news of the gospel. This is good news for you and I. We must get to a place where we are broken over our sin and we see the depth of our heart and we cry out and we say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, I am clean. I am unclean. You are clean. I am guilty. You are not guilty. You knew no sin. I've known tons of sin. And God shows his love for us in this. Uh, Romans that I quoted that from. Chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the good news of the gospel. That why you and I, just like the Pharisee, just like the scribe, who've justified our actions and have sought to earn our own way, have sought to, to justify the things that we've done, have sought to, in, our, in our works and in our actions to earn favor of God, and we have fallen short. We've rebelled. we sinned. We've turned against God. That in that reality and in that truth, there is hope for us. Because Jesus willingly went to the cross to die for us just as he did for those scribes and Pharisees. Friends, this is good news. So today, let the word confront your sin. 
Where does the word say to you? Where does the word show you? You are not obeying the word of God. And let you recognize those things. And don't be the person that's confronted and then holds on to it. And looks and says, well, the thing that is confronting me with my wrongdoing is bad. Let me cling to my wrongdoing. Actually, let the word of God, who that gives us the standard in which to live by. Let us be the people who hear the word of God and keep it. That we would, we would say, this is the standard. Let us repent. Let us turn from the ways of the world. And let us put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ and live for him. This is the good news of the gospel. Believe it today. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word. Lord, may it be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. May it show us light and darkness. May, it, may you, your, by your Holy Spirit today, illuminate truth in our hearts. Lord, let our eyes be on you. Let, let the, the light in us shine Lord bring us to a place of repentance where we turn from the things of the world and we put our eyes on the things that are above that we put our eyes on your kingdom Lord if there's th those who are in the room today who do not know you Lord would your Holy Spirit move in their hearts would you save them would today in these, this moment, would they cry out to you and say, Lord, I believe. Save me from my unbelief. Lord, may they repent. May they turn from their sin and the ways of the world. And may they live for you. May they be as what we see blessed. Rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Father, we love you and we praise you. Move and work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing a song of response.